here and welcome to the Oscars Death Race podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name's Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Apologies for the relative absence from your feeds for the past couple of weeks. Um, as I mentioned before, I was moving apartments, and so my recording setup wasn't quite uh, you know, put up quite yet um, until actually just this past weekend. Um, that said, we are heading into the final stretch of the Oscars death race with less than a week to go as of the release of this episode. So I do owe you an update on my own watch progress and what I have left to watch, um, as well as my thoughts on those films. Now, as of the writing of this episode uh, on Sunday evening, um, I have watched 34 out of the 38 features with four left to go. I ended up watching the three documentary feature films I hadn't yet seen, uh, Summer of Soul, Ascension, and Riding with Fire, um, as well as Licorice Pizza. Um, that leaves Drive My Car, Coming to America, No Time to Die, and Four Good Days among the features. All of these are available digitally. Uh, Drive My Car is on HBO Max, uh, Coming to America is on Prime, No Time to Die on VOD, and Four Good Days is on Hulu. I'm probably making it more difficult for myself than it needs to be, frankly, um, as I'm also trying to make time to watch the first... I I made time to watch the first Coming to America movie, um, and I'm scheduling myself to try to watch the four Daniel Craig Bond films that precede No Time to Die before that, but if I end up not having enough time, I might just skip those. Um, But, you know, I think even with those, I think I should be good to go uh, for the rest of this week. On the sorts side of things, I actually have seen 10 of the 15 sorts already. Um, I watched the live-action sorts showcase at the IFC Center, um, and then I watched the various animated sort films at home, leaving with only the 5 of the 15 documentary sort films left, uh, which are all available on Netflix or YouTube or Vimeo at this point. So those will be easy to knock out this week as well. Overall, that leaves me at 44 out of 53 total films completed. Now, that being said, you know, there are others who have already completed the race, as we do every week. Uh, we're going to go through the leaderboard of the OscarsDeathRace.com website, managed by Reddit user Ford vs. Perari, and congratulate everyone who's completed the Death Race since the last episode. Uh, since we've been gone for two weeks uh, and the race is getting on its home stretch, the number of race completers has nearly doubled from 42 to 82. So, we're going to have a lot of names to go through. So, bear with me here. Uh, congratulations to... Greg, Bat of Zion, Demetrius DX, Dorky Romantic, NKOAS, Ilya Latvia, The Elk, Brian Tinsley, Mining the Gap Was Robbed, Chris Brooke, Geraldo Marcial, Brooke Siegler, Eric from Boston, Alfredo Two, White Fang, SBLLMRN, Arthur Ochi, Tatsuo52832, Alize85, Casal Born, Tamai. Tam Tam Aimbo, uh, Jeomaju, uh, Golarago, apologies for, if I'm mispronouncing any of these, uh, Snooberry, uh, Selk Sess, uh, Axramas, Gary Kroger, Oofrab, Gerald, B. Prisco, Natdog, Demo FC, Ubi Good, Rick Squared, Number Six, Penny Lane 6182, uh, Edar, uh, Edgar Marquesum, uh, Himalek, Quarantine Critic with a Q, and Mike DT Com. Congratulations to all of you who have completed the race. Um, I know there are a lot of people in the Discord Status Updates channel who have also been posting their updates as they get through the last couple of films, and they're very close to completing. So if I haven't called your name because you didn't sign up for the OscarsDeathRace.com, but you have completed the race, congrats to you as well. Uh, for everyone else in the boat, at same boat as I am, you know we're in the home stretch. You know, then you know this is my encouragement to you that you know we're almost there. Let's, let's 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 try to get this red and finish things off. Now, if you completed the death race, um, as this episode comes out, there are two things you should do. Uh, first, if you're on the Academy of Death Racers Discord, which is as always is linked in the show notes, uh, when this episode drops, there should be still some time to vote for the annual Deathy Awards. Um, these are our version of the Oscars, where we have the same nominees, but we vote on who we think should win um, and try to see how it differs from the Academy. Given that there's allegedly some Academy voters, uh, many Academy voters who don't watch every film uh, when they're voting. Um, in addition we have our own category specific to the deathies plus you know slight astronomer our producer extraordinaire puts on an excellent live stream um you know he did so last year i'm expecting the one this coming saturday to be a great one uh, with special segments and such which i'm also working on as well uh, voting closes i believe tuesday at 6 p.m uk time so if you're listening to this monday as this episode comes out you still have a chance to vote for the deathies ahead of the live stream again happening this coming saturday the 26th before the oscars 
Uh, the second thing you should do is actually join my contest. Uh, like we did earlier this season when trying to predict who would get nominated, I'm running a contest that's for fun, no actual prize beyond bragging rights, um, where we try to predict who will win the Ampus Oscars, as opposed to the Death East, which is more so what we want to win. Um, you know, The scoring is pretty simple, one point per category, aside from Best Picture, which has two points. Um, that gets us to 24 total, uh, plus a half point each for the totally real, but also in my eyes, definitely not real Oscar categories um, of Oscar fan favorite and Oscar cheer moment. Um, so half a point for those two categories plus 24 puts us to 25 points total. Uh, whoever gets the most points will end up winning. Uh, if there are any ties first, it'll be tie broken by who got best picture um, correct. And then, you know, if there still is a tie after that, uh, whoever submitted their uh, fi- their entry first um, ends up, ends up uh, winning. Now, because of the shenanigans, you know, re- uh, recording, uh, pre-recording some of the awards, you know, an hour before the ceremony, um, I'm going to go ahead and close the ballots at 12 noon Eastern time on Sunday. Um, so, so far, we have a little over 20 submissions last I checked. So, you know, you definitely suit your shot. It's just all in good fun anyway. Uh, in addition, at the predictions contest, I asked you guys to who you think should be nominated for Best Picture. I ended up getting a ballot of about 11 films that I, I'm using as a community-driven uh, Best Picture category. So, you know, there were some films on here like Come On, Come On or Mass that were not nominated uh, for Best Picture from the Oscars. And some others like Don't Look Up and I think King Richard uh, end up, and then ended up not getting in uh, this final ballot. So, you know, at the end of this con- of the contest form, where we're trying to predict who we think the Ampus Oscars are going to be. Um, I'm also asking you guys to fill out a preferential ballot to help pick the film's commu- this community's Best Picture winner, uh, which again is separate from the nominee list that Ampus gave us. Links to both the AODR Death East ballot as well as my own Oscars winners prediction contest ballot will be in the show notes. Uh, to help you out with the latter, I'm actually going to be putting out a second episode later this week, I think Thursday or Friday. Um, I actually recorded uh, where I interviewed uh, a f- another Death Racer, um, actually the person who is currently uh, has the first place of the uh, of the OscarsDeathRace.com leaderboard, though he'll contest that. I actually recorded this episode uh, on uh, Sunday afternoon um, before writing this, um, but that's just the way production works. Um, anyway, that episode should come out later this week, Wednesday or Thursday. So keep an eye out for that. If you know you want help with the with the with the uh, uh, with the contest ballot, or even if your own office has an Oscar poll, this might maybe help you out there. Uh, in any case, let's go ahead and take a look at the films that I've seen this past week. Uh, first up, we have uh, one of the two Best Picture nominees I have yet I had yet to finish. Um, leaving, and finishing this leaves me with only Drive My Car Left. But uh, in any case, we have Licorice Pizza. Uh, it is a coming-of-age comedy drama written and directed by Academy favorite Paul Thomas Anderson. Set in the early 1970s San Fernando Valley, it follows the friendship relationship between 15-year-old teenage actor Gary Valentine and 25-year-old photographer's assistant Alana Kane, played respectively by Cooper Hoffman, the son of longtime PTA muse Philip Seymour Hoffman and, Al- and Alana Haim of the Haim sisters uh, who PTA has filmed their music videos of um, and this is both of their acting debut also showing up uh, in the various vignettes are you know Sean Penn Tom Waits Bradley Cooper and Benny Safdie as various characters based on uh, Hollywood figures of the time uh, Licorice Pizza had a limited release November 26th before expanding wide December 25th it's currently nominated for Best Picture Best Director and Best Original Screenplay uh, critics gave it a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, while audiences didn't seem to like it as much with only 65% on Rotten Tomatoes. Letterboxd currently has it at 3.8 out of 283,000 viewers. It's currently available for rent and purchase on VOD. So, you know, this one definitely, you know, as you can tell by that Rotten Tomatoes score, is one of the more contentious films, I think. I think people who like it really like it, and people who didn't like it really didn't like it. And, you know, there are various reasons for that. Um, you know, I think this is very much a vibes-type film uh, where, you know, the, the plot isn't the most strong. I think this is definitely, like, quote-unquote nostalgic film, so to speak. Um, but, you know, there are also elements about that that are not very well received. You know, there's a couple of, uh, you know, even just throwaway jokes, um, kind of using, making use of, like, a pretty racist Asian accent um, that, you know, a lot of people uh, took offense to. Um and, you know, so that definitely, you know, didn't, didn't help its case out, especially the fact that it was like a throwaway joke and not really adding a lot to the film in general. Um, now, as you know, as far as the Oscar nominees, you know, I will say for whatever flaws this film has in, you know, what you think of maybe screenplay and, you know, just kind of the lack of a plot overall, I will say, you know, this is my second Paul Thomas Anderson film, film I've seen um, 
actually the first one though since I've actually really started seriously looking at film uh, the first one being There Will Be Blood when I was you know I think in like high school uh, you know set, like, over a decade ago at this point um, but you know I will say what really stood out to me here I think was the use of the camera movements to really create these like interesting dynamic shots um, that just felt really like you know they, they you know tracking cams and you know just the way that it moved around the cameras and framed things I think was you know definitely you can tell that that direction of their that, that PTA had in mind I think definitely so still so I think I, I wouldn't be I'm not too upset with the best uh, director nomination that we have here um I also will say, you know, this is not quite a nomination, but I will also say, like, the music use here, which, again, this is another Johnny Greenwood uh, scored film, and, you know, not even just his score, but also all the other kind of, like, uh, of-the-time songs used as a soundtrack also, you know, I think really add to the atmosphere that this film is going for. Now, speaking of the soundtrack, again, this is, there's a lot of things to unpack here, right? Which, you know, I, other people smarter than me have already kind of unpacked a lot of it. Um, but, you know, there is kind of like a, you know, point of contention people have about the relationship between, you know, the 15-year-old Gary Valentine and 25-year-old Alana Kane. Kane. Some people are saying, you know, it's pedophilia and so on, especially with the ending, which, you know, we go into spoilers here, you know, they kind of quote-unquote end up together at the end. Um, and, you know, I definitely can see where that's coming from, right? And I think, the more I think about this film, having watched it, so I watched it, uh, I, I, w I took a day trip to Philadelphia earlier this weekend, so I watched half of it on the way there, half on the way back, and, you know, it was very, I, I mean, the, the screenplay from the get-go was kind of, like, pretty cringy, right? I mean, like, the way that, you know, when they meet themselves for Gary's, like, yearbook picture day, and he's kind of, like, flirting with her in line, and, you know, she's like, I'm not going on a date with you, and then she ends up going on a date with him later, right? And it's like, this felt very cringy, and, you know, and then there are these various vignettes, like, you know, like him, you know, going on this on this uh, cross-country tour for, the, you know, a press tour or whatever, meeting with the racist, you know, Japanese restaurant owner, the waterbed stuff and all that, like, all of these different vignettes, are these individual stories that I think, again, add to a vibe, but there isn't like that straight narrative of what it is. And I think over time, as I've thought about it more, read more about the film, I think my conclusion on what the film is about really is a couple of things. I think, one, this is like a nostalgic film about specifically the San Fernando Valley, which, you know, the Oscars and Academy is going to love films that's kind of referential about the Hollywood the Hollywood industry and, and the L.A. scene in general. And so, you know, I think one is about a send-up of those, right? Um, a send-up of that and kind of pointing out maybe there are some problematic things, you know, of this time kind of in, but it's, but, it, but then the other part is because it's Hollywood, people tend to overgloss it. So maybe on a meta level, right? It's taking a look at, oh, this glamour of Hollywood, but then also kind of like the ugly stuff underneath which if that was the case i don't think it really goes that far into it as well um another thing is kind of like you know about the relationship i think there is an interesting story hidden in here of alana hames character um as opposed to the the gary valentine character which it seems to follow a little bit more of of her you know being in this transitory period of her life between you know and you know kind of like marking the difference between you know everything that gary right as a, a wannabe hustler child actor turned entrepreneur entrepreneur like his magic and charisma so uh, so-called charisma right um like what's attractive about that and going and then but then kind of you know and then kind of like he ends up being neutered, right? At, at various points in the film when CISO's interested in older men, right? Who kind of in this way are who he wants to end up becoming, right? Um, but then it shows that it's shown eventually, right? That all of these men that she's attracted to, that she's interested in, have their own flaws, you know, be they, you know, being nostalgic or being kind of du duplicitive or whatever, right? Like there are all these things that I think that I think is where like the real screenplay. So I think the more I think on the screenplay, the more I think the screenplay actually is kind of deserving of the yeah, nomination, potentially even the win for best original screenplay, the more I think about it. I think the ending again, where it kind of like wraps around to like, oh, they're getting together. I think un like, unfortunately doesn't put a nice bow on it. I think it like, it, they, they get to that point where they, where, where it's there. And then, I don't know what this film is endorsing. I don't know what this film is trying to say, so to speak. And I think there's that vibe, that attempt at something there, but I think that's where it falls a little bit short for me. Um, overall, when I initially reviewed the film, I gave it a two out of five stars, you know, just because, like, that, that I think I, there are slice of life films. Like I, I think I mentioned this like in the Discord. But I think there's there's a lot of different things, right? I think it, it's a lot a lot like other films mentioned this season and even in past season, right? It has a little bit of worst person in the world of these people just kind of like living their lives in non strictly consecutive stories, kind of like going through life. And I really like worst person in the world 
for some reason, I think this one just didn't quite have it. I think maybe the fact that the story was split between two people, maybe because it was hard to really relate to like growing up in San Fernando Valley if you didn't really live there. Um, maybe that's part of why like this, this didn't really click for me to some degree. Um, the other part film that this kind of reminds me a lot of is, uh, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood was, you know, last year's nominate nominated film, uh, you know, which again has that nostalgic factor when it comes to thinking about Hollywood and old Hollywood and what life, you know, driving around and all that was like. And then, you know, if you're going to go that nostalgic, I'd even throw in a little bit of, you know, the Italian film this year, Hand of God, which frankly is pretty horny. Um, and this definitely has those horny elements, especially from the Gary Valentine perspective. So I didn't really like Hand of God, but I feel like I even liked it a little bit more with what it was trying to do than here. So, you know, I gave this film initially a two out of five. I think thinking on the screenplay more, maybe that elevates it to a three out of five. Um, I don't definitely don't think it's like a best picture, you know, winner for sure. Maybe screenplay. I don't think director, I think director's kind of locked up here. Um, but yeah, that's my thoughts on Licorice Pizza, I guess. Um, I could definitely see this being better on a rewatch when you're thinking about like how all of like the male characters Alana is interested in. Uh, you know, kind of reflect what Gary could potentially become and kind of like that dichotomy of her trying to find herself. I just don't feel like the film executes and says something about it in the very end, unfortunately. Um, moving on to the documentaries, right? So, you know, the I actually had seen a documentary a couple of weeks ago at this point, you know, before the move, um, because it was on Amazon Prime, but ended up leaving the platform at the end of last month. Um, that was Attica. Um, Attica is a retrospective documentary on the 50th anniversary of the 1971 Attica prison uprising, the largest, I believe, inmate uprising in U.S. history, um, put together predominantly through in interviews with many of the inmates at the time and others involved in the various negotiations between officials and the inmates. Um, this is directed by Tracy Curry and Stanley Nelson, who also wrote the documentary. It debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival and aired on Showtime. It's currently nominated for Best Documentary Feature Film. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 98% critic score, an 82% audience score, and on Letterboxd, it has a 3.8 out of 6.1k viewers. Um, so, yeah, I think Attica... So, thinking about documents... So I can step back and think about documentaries in general. You know, there's, I, I really like the documentary category, you know, I never really think about it that much, but then when it comes time to like actually get sitting down and watching the film, it's really cool to see all the different ways that different documentaries can try to tell a story, right? Tell a narrative of real life, right? And real life is sometimes stranger than fiction, the way you portray that you know, story, but the real part of a, a story of power of documentary and narrative, you know, filmmaking, um, which, you know, I even do in podcasting to some degree is to how do you tell a narrative? How do you create characters in the narrative to tell a story, right? And it doesn't even need to have characters, but how do you tell the story of this true life in a way that's compelling um, that you don't, that you don't need to have lived it, but makes you feel like you did. So, you know, obviously kind of like the, the bog standard approach um, of most documentaries that maybe you see on you know, sci-fi or history channel is, hey, here's some event, here's footage from the event, and then we're going to intersperse it with, um, you know, the talking heads of people involved or experts on the field talking about their experiences, either, you know, if it's people who are indirectly involved, their firsthand experiences, and then experts kind of like the broader context of like the importance of this and how and kind of piecing these pieces together. Um, you know, obviously this one takes, you know, kind of like footage from the time um, as opposed to, you know, recreations, which you know, tend to be what you see in a lot of documentaries and stock footage and so on. Um so, you know, I think that's kind of like, uh, and that's kind of like what happened here with Attica, right? Like it's a stock, like, you know, they interviewed the, the various, um, you know, various, various prisoners who would speak again, some, you know, people related to guards who were involved in there, some people who were involved in negotiations and kind of talked through the sequence of events, right? From beginning to end of, this is how the story is told in chronological order. Um, I'm not going to lie, the first probably like our first you know two-thirds of the film i was kind of bored right like okay this is like a kind of like a standard documentary it's the last half hour would you know kind of like everything that's been built up to the final confrontation between the national guard and the inmates and kind of like building that tension before it's kind of released and then you know kind of like the first-hand accounts of the inmates right i think comes through and the footage and the story of what happens is just so powerful that, you know, I definitely can see why this is an important documentary to tell. Um, that all being said, and, and again, the images, you know, particularly I think are, are super haunting as well. And, you know, definitely a, a content advisory for to maybe think if you have like young kids, to con we consider showing this to them until they're ready for it. Now, that being said, right, I think, you know, 
standard documentary. I overall spoil give it a three out of five. I think overall, I think what this documentary falls short is that um, one, right? I think that there were well, okay, there were moments throughout the films where you know they're talking to to some inmates and then they talk about other inmates, and I'm like, okay, why didn't those inmates get interviewed for here? Um, spoiler alert: some of those inmates end up getting killed in the and in, in the resolution of the uh, prison uh, of the uprising, right? So that's obviously why they can. But then there were some others who did, but then they ended up you know surviving, right? But then they didn't get end up getting interviewed, even though they were still alive. Um, and maybe that's just a production thing; they couldn't get them. Maybe you know, there was a legal case apparently related to this that ends up maybe they're not allowed to talk about it due to NDA requirements or whatever. Um, but for whatever reason, right, I feel like you know this film set up that, oh, there are these interesting perspectives we could have had that we ended up just not getting, right? Um, and then the other part, I think that this film falls a little bit short in. And so I can't really fault it for that. For that to, to, yeah, you, you can kind of have what you work. You kind of can work with what you got. Um, the other part, though, I think that this lacked was, I think, the context. Right? They do a little bit of stuff of the context of, um, hey, this is a white town with predominantly, you know, black, um, with predominantly black and, and brown uh, inmates, right? And so, you know, that kind of like sets that scene. It doesn't really give the context of like, okay, what are the outgoing impacts of Attica in terms of the conversation around the prison industrial complex of race relations in the U.S. and so on. Like it doesn't really go super into like the 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 impacts of this, right? Like I think when you're talking about a specific event in history, right? Maybe this is like a not so known event. And granted, you know, the, telling the story of Attica is, I think, again, an important story in and of its own, right? I think where the best documentaries come from, they already can take a a singular event and then put it into the broader context of where important things came about. Like an example would be Crip Camp, right? From from last year where we talked about, um, you know, this one specific summer camp of kids um, with disabilities and how, and how it like eventually led out to the broader implications of the fight for disability rights in the U.S. more broadly or the year before, American Factory. This one specific case of, you know, this one factory being um, taken over by Chinese investors in the U.S. and then kind of like what that means for the broader U.S.-Chinese relationship uh, in terms of capitalism and all that. I think those are like the best cases for this. And I think this is where this film, this documentary falls a little bit short. Very good documentary in its own right for what it attempts to do. I just think it could have been elevated a little bit more. Now, an example of a film that I think does a really good job of this is Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Cannot Be Televised. Um, this one is a music documentary looking back at the little-known 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, a.k.a. Black Woodstock, uh, put together through over 40 hours worth of footage that had apparently sat in the basement for like 50 years or something, and this was directed by Questlove of The Roots. A debut at the 2021 Sundance uh, Film Festival, where it won the Grand Jury and Audience Awards for Best Documentary Feature, which is the category where it is nominated for the Oscars. After limited release in June, it released on Hulu. Um, it is well received with 99% critics, 98% audience on Rotten Tomatoes, and 4.1 after 40k viewers on Letterboxd. So again, going back to the format, this one is similar to Summer of Soul, uh, to, to Attica, where they have people who are involved in, in Black Woodstock, the Harlem Cultural Festival, talking. Um, some were you know, participants, people who were teenagers at the time, kind of reminiscing about this this experience that they had. Um, others were performers who were involved in, um, you know, actually who actually performed at the at the um, uh, at the at the event. Now, I think what set this apart from other uh, you know other, other talking head documentaries like um, like Attica, for example, is that instead of just having them you know talk about their experience and and on on camera. What they interestingly did here, because of the situation with the footage kind of being hidden, right? Um, There's like a line where one of the movie go where the festival goers was like, "I thought I had hallucinated this, and seeing this kind of tells me that oh, this was a real thing, right? I'm not crazy." And seeing the facial and emotional reactions of both the guests and also the attendees to this footage, which had presumably been lost for decades at this point. That reaction, I think, adds that emotional component to the film and documentary that really elevates this film and makes and makes it a really relatable experience. I think um, more so than, than anything else of that kind that seeing those facial reactions to you can see like the light on their faces as they're watching the footage and just the facial reactions. Some of them coming to tears, thinking about what it meant for them in their career. Right, and some of these are you know 
are are people who were interviewed and then you have gone on to have great careers and then seeing just them look back to where they were when they were so much younger and seeing these people in a different context I think is so amazing. Um, side note on the footage, I really love this kind of footage where you know you take footage and you kind of like remaster it. I think another example of a good documentary that did this was a couple of years ago, didn't get, or maybe it was last year, didn't get nominated for the Oscars, but it was Apollo 11, uh, which took, again, footage from the Apollo 11 event um, that had been, you know, preserved but that ended up never being seen and then they digitized it and turned it into this amazing experience which I saw on IMAX and that this kind of reminds me of that. Um, now another I think difference right is that the footage being uh, kind of this hidden footage right uh, that was meant for broad like they filmed it for broadcast which was never that ended up never getting done letting that the footage of the event itself speak for itself. I think another thing I like about document, another form of documentary I like is where the footage can speak for itself. You don't need the the narration around it. And then, you know, Questlove, to his credit as a director, when he's, you know, curating these pieces, takes it, uses his musical background to really, like, one, the editing here is amazing. Where, and again, has a real rhythm to it based, I think, from his experience as a musician. Um, but then, again, right, like, letting the footage in and of itself just kind of sit there, especially of the musical performances, which, again, there were 40 hours. You had to get it down to two hours. I think there's a three-and-a-half-hour cut of this documentary out there somewhere. But, like, a two-hour, like, just two hours of these fo- of this performance footage from different angles and just, like, you know, sometimes it feels like you might think it's just about to go, the performance about to go a little bit too like, okay, let's get to the next one. And you get, you, but you, you, they do eventually at the right time. But letting it just sit and just live in the moment as if you were there, I think it's just a very powerful thing here. Now, that being said, again, like I said with Attica, it's a film, documentaries about specific events, I think really get elevated when you put it in the context of everything going on around it, right? Um, and again, I think putting this in the context of, you know, 1968, you know, the, um, you know, the whole situation with Martin Luther King getting assassinated and kind of like the the, the rise of black, the black power movement here, right? Um, you know, you have, you know, the, uh, the situation with the moon landing, it was happening at the same time as the Harlem Cultural Festival. Kind of just like all of these different cultural elements that you know speak about this moment and then how and it's not so much a documentary about the Harlem Cultural Film Festival which you know it granted it is but it's really about looking at the broader society and the slice of black America and New York America right at this moment and kind of like how Harlem Cultural Festival was a encapsulation of all of that so you better understand the broader picture by understanding the microcosm of this festival I think that's where this film, I think, really elevates itself above its peers. Um, I gave it a four out of five. I know some people may have had it as one of their favorite films of the year last year, which I wouldn't fault them for. Um, so yeah, I think that's my thoughts on on Summer of Soul. Definitely uh, would love to see more footage from from some other performances. Um, I know Questlove, you have them out there somewhere. Um, and then the next documentary I ended up seeing uh, was Ascension, uh, which is, uh, a, I think, probably the most experimental, I think, of the documentary feature film nominees. Um, it's a documentary by American, Chinese-American, actually, filmmaker Jessica Kingdon, uh, half Chinese on her mother's side. Um, it's about the idea of the Chinese dream, kind of similar to the American dream, but the Chinese dream um, in recent years, you know, with the rise of consumerism and capitalism on all levels of the socioeconomic you know, ladder within China and how it's kind of been in impacted by that growth, um, with the title coming from a poem that Kingdon's great-grandfather wrote, uh, you know, decades ago. Uh, debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival, where it won Best Documentary Feature, as well as, uh, you know, Best New Documentary Director. Um, it's currently nominated for Best Documentary Feature at the Oscars. Uh, it was picked up by MTV Documentary Films for distribution, meaning that it is now released on Paramount+, Plus, uh, where I ended up watching it, and it's currently available. Uh, with very few audience ratings, it sits at a 95% critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 3.5 on Leather box and a 5.9 from viewers so unlike you know Attica and Summer of Soul which are you know pretty much a talking head documentary uh, Ascension really goes into kind of like the type of documentary where you just live the experience and what more so it does so really without any um really without any characters behind it, right? Like you basically get these snapshots, these um, these slices, these excerpts from life in China, right? I think it was like 51 different locations I saw that they went to where, you know, everything, and, and the film is very structured in a very intelligent way, right? Like the title of Ascension, talking about the, you know, socioeconomic, the, the wealth divide and the growth of, of, of Chinese capitalism. It starts from the very bottom of that ladder of, people who are being recruited, you know, out of high school or college to go work at these 
phone match, fanny match, manufacturing plants like Foxconn and kind of like the recruiting pitches that these, uh, the recruiters end up doing. You know, it's a standing job. You know, you get air conditioning, you have dorm and so on and so forth. We're looking for these kind of people. Um, and then you move up a little bit to like, you know, people who are still in manufacturing, but maybe have a little bit more of a, an artisanal um, approach to their manufacturing, right? And a little bit more involved, less so assembly line factory worker, which, um, like the scenes with the sex doll manufacturing was just like a whole other level. Um, moving up then, right, to people who are, you know, maybe lower middle class who are trying to, you know, to take lessons on how to have proper business etiquette and so on, right? Moving up the line to people who have, you know, uh, who are able to go on vacation and so on. And then finally, you know, these people, these massive multi-conglomerate, you know, upper, upper class of, wine, of Chinese wealth um, who have like fancy dinners and so on, right? And, you know, each slice along the way, is just it's completely unnarrated. It is just, and it is not even any sub. Like there are subtitles, but there are no kind of like you know headlines or markers that, that separating each sentence. It's a very gradual, again, ascension through the through the class that you kind of imperceptibly go from one level to the next. You kind of like you don't know where one starts and begins, and kind of see how it grows and what life like, and kind of like the contrast from the beginning to the very end is very stark when you think about it in a whole. Um, I think adding to that is that the footage of here was just stunning. I think like whatever Jessica Kingdon's doing to like have her eye for the camera to get these shots of factory workers, it's very different than anything else I've ever seen. It makes all of this like work out. All of this thing seems very artistic. Anything, any individual screenshot from this wall, from this documentary could be a wallpaper. Just the use of color, the way things are framed, things are pulled into focus and so on. Um, all of these different things just reflect a real eye, I think, at capturing just like this, it's very meditative, I think, is probably the best word that people have for this. Um, very vibey, right? So, you know, I think, and I think the fact that it makes these, it just lets the viewer just sit here, meditate, like, meditate on this, this is what China is like today, right? And this is how it, how it's evolved, right? And this is like what Chinese society is like, um, and kind of like the ascent and the goal of the Chinese dream, so to speak, of to ascend this ladder. Like, I think, it doesn't like the the all documentary have has a perspective, right? I think, for example, Summer of Soul very much I think could only really have been made through Questlove's perspective, um, and you get that sense of that perspective from him and his musical background and and his activism and so on. You really get a sense of 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 Kingdon's perspective here, but really without it being ever made explicit, right? Like, and it's and and that's an interesting, right? You get her, her perspective on this is what China is. But it doesn't make assertions like, oh, this was good, this is bad. It just lets the viewer make their own, you know, and I really love it when films are, let trust in the viewers to be intelligent and make their own conclusions, you know, kind of, again, documentaries are about documenting life, presenting what is out there. Um, some have an agenda and try to, like, push for specific, you know, um, specific uh, um uh, specific perspective, specific goal, specific takeaway that they want the audience to walk away from. Um, others are about, you know, here's life and he make make of it what you will. And I really like like those documentaries, even if they are maybe some of the least accessible documentaries out there. Um, Overall, though, I think uh, I really like this one. I, don't, I think it might be a little bit too experimental for the Oscars and the general audience, frankly. Um, but I really think it's beautiful. And I think if the Academy was really bold, I think they should give a sense in the 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 uh, nominate the, the award here. I don't think they're going to. I think it's going to go to Summer of Soul. Um, but I would very be, much be happy with an Ascension uh, nomination here or win here. Uh, final documentary was kind of was a bit of a, a difficult to track down. So, um, Riding with Fire is a documentary from India by uh, Susrit Ghost and Rintu Thomas, following the Dalit. So, you know, the caste system in uh, in India. You know, uh, the low caste woman. Uh, uh, it's a woman. Uh, the low caste woman. Uh, sorry, a newspaper led by women of low caste, um, entirely run by women, called uh, Kabar Lahria. Um, over five years, as they shift from a print publication over to using smartphones to create a YouTube channel and do digital coverage um, of various cases around India from a, you know, again, all predominantly a woman perspective and lower caste perspective, but things affecting, you know, regional uh, issues that kind of resonate on, on a more national level. So things like mining collapses, rape cases, the rise of Hindu nationalism, um, with the rise of, of, of Prime Minister Modi, um, and kind of all, and, and how these, uh, 
these reporters deal with the potential stigma of being a woman reporter, right? You know, when in very much in, in the society that they're in, it's expected that people, especially of their caste, are expected to marry and have kids uh, as opposed to having a career. Um, now, Riding with Fire premiered at Sundance where it won audience and special jury awards for world cinema documentary. It's currently up for best documentary. Now, it was difficult to find because it's not widely publicly available. I believe it's going to be released on VOD after the Oscars. Um, that said, various PBS stations on, have been having screenings online, though apparently those have been like, you know, hour-long excerpts from the hour-and-a-half-long documentary. I believe the BBC player at TIFF, uh, or the TIFF player in Canada, if you use a VPN, um, have access to this. Um, and of course, this is also floating around online somewhere. Um, it's currently at 100% on Letterboxd and has a 3.7 from, from critics, has a 3.7 out of 2 point uh, on Letterboxd. Uh, sorry, Rotten Tomatoes has it 100% from critics and Letterboxd has it at 3.7 out of 2.4K viewers. So another year, another documentary about journalism. Last year, uh, it was... Um uh, I forget the one, the one from Romania about the fire um, collective, I think, um, that, that you know, about, and kind of the journalism that went into all that. And similarly, right, I think journalism definitely lends itself to being a good source for um, documentary filmmaking, especially as, you know, you kind of embed with the journalism team and as they go about their daily duties and kind of like the process. Now, it's not always easy. It's kind of like having sense that you get a good story by embedding with the right team. And that's kind of like the case here where this is very much the lived experience. It's not the woman later. I mean, granted, they do some at some points, but for the most part, they're not sitting sitting and then giving an interview. Oh, this is what happened in this past for this one specific incident. This is them in the moment and the, this kind of, kind of like a fly on the wall over their shoulder as they're going about their lives and their jobs. Um, I think overall, right, it doesn't really do anything too new in that regard, right? I mean, there have been other documentaries like this, as I mentioned. Um, I think this one's carried by its material. Again, an underdog journalism story, you know, about low cast, uh, a low cast newspaper, a woman newspaper, um, kind of like you know, getting kind of like surging and growing um, their influence, right? Especially as as those are more and more hostile forces against them. Um, granted, I don't think the narrative beyond that oh they're growing um is great like i is is super compelling i think oh it's compelling but i don't think it's like transcendent right if that if that kind of difference makes sense like it's really a great story i think in terms of though like what does this mean and and it does a little bit of like the contextualization but it's really just about like this one group and their story as opposed to like kind of like broader issues overall so overall i think again great documentary would recommend you check it out i still i can give it a three out of five overall so overall, of the documentaries, right, um, aside from these four, I, we talked about in past episodes, Flea, which I've done enough. Um, that one, just to go quickly through what I mentioned, is, you know, definitely like a unique perspective is one person's recollections of their experiences, um, which is, again, a different way to do a documentary, right, and kind of like using that one experience to talk about like a broader implication of, of events, right, like specifically the Afghan refugee crisis, though, and and LGBT issues and so on. Though again, I think that um, you know, I don't. It doesn't quite do as much contextualization as other films does. If I had to like rank these documentaries, I think. Um, well, I think thinking about documentaries, right? Like they always tend to, I think, reflect something about the moment we're in, right? Like documentaries that get nominated are always about issues politically, even if they're not explicitly so about things that are just so important to today's society, at least from the Academy's perspective, right? Um, flee, again, I mentioned Afghan, uh, Afghan refugee crisis, um, uh, Attica, you know, black relations and, and, and imprisonment, um, Summer of Soul, again, kind of like black, the black experience in America, um, you know, uh, uh, we have uh, Ascension, which is kind of like, you know, looking looking toward the East, looking to China and kind of like their growth uh, over the past couple of decades um, as an economic force. And then Riding with Fire is, again, power of journalism and, and this specific issue in India. Um, I think what I'm looking for are those that have like a strong subject matter, but also have a really strong, doc like a unique documentary format, right? I think, you know, uh, Format-wise, Attica, Riding with Fire are okay, but they don't really do anything pushing. So I think Summer of Soul, Flea, and Ascension are the ones that really push the format as well. Um, of those, I think that uh, Summer of Soul does the best in terms of putting things in context, which is what I really look for most of, most of all within a, a document. Like, why, like they, telling you why you should care, care about this, even though not explicitly, but expressing why, why it's important to know about this situation. Um and, and kind of like giving a takeaway 
beyond assuming, oh, you happen to be of this particular political bent and therefore you will get it, right? Like putting it in context, I think is important. I think Summer of Soul does that the best. Again, I think my personal pick would be Ascension just because of how unique it is, I think, in terms of a really, I think it, the way, the fact that it pushes the envelope so far in terms of like what documentary can documentaries can be. Um, as far, in addition to its subject matter, I think being one that, you know, isn't talked about enough, I think, um, and it would be a different perspective. I think it would be something I enjoy there, but I think this is going to go to Summer of Soul overall. Um, we're going to breeze through the last two categories that I have to walk, talk through. Um, these are the sort categories. I'm not going to go through all of the stats and backgrounds of all these films beyond like a quick logline. Um, so first up, we have the live action sorts. Again, I saw these at the IFC Center um, uh, in the past month or so. Um, I'm going to talk about them in order that they screened within the sewing. Um, so first up was On My Mind, which is a Danish sort film by Martin Strange Hansen. It's about a man who goes to a bar to try to sing the Elvis Presley song Always On My Mind for his wife. Um, you know, it's a pretty typical love story. It's a pretty, it's a pretty fairly, I won't say predictable love story, but it's definitely once you know what's happening, it's like, okay, we've kind of seen this story before to some degree. Um, I like the metaphors and kind of like some of the metaphors that go in there. I think it was really well acted. Um, you know, I don't think it does anything particularly novel in that regard, but it's still definitely enjoyable, I think, or enjoyable and appreciate, and appreciated. I would give this one like a three out of five, you know, fairly, fairly well done. Um, next up, we have Please Hold, which is a crowdfunded American sci-fi sword film directed by K.D. Davila about a young Latino man who is arrested by mistake uh, and incarcerated in a fully automated jail run completely by computers while he tries to, f you know, I think it's a remake of the um, the Kafka story about the bu bureaucracy. Um, it's a satire of the Byzantine privatized justice system as it is today in America. Um, now, I think... I really like this one. I think I'm just a sucker for sci-fi satires to some degree, right? Like, Two Distant Strangers last year might have been a little bit on the nose, and maybe this is a little bit too, but I really think sci-fi is its best when it makes use of sci-fi in order to tell, um, and frankly, in a, kind of like a dark, humorous manner, um, you know, uh, t commenting on today's society, and I think this one really does that. Um, so I think I would, and, and I think, you know, the production, again, it's like a, basically a one- two people so um maybe if you consider like the lawyer who or a couple people so who who, who end up do going through video call but i think like the production here was also pretty clever as well so i think this one really is real well put together and, and it clearly with limited resources but still done really well so i would definitely give please hold i think a four out of five uh, next up is The Dress, which is a student film from the Warsaw Film School by, apologies for mispronouncing this name, uh, Tadeusz Lysiak, about a hotel maid with dwarfism who struggles with social rejection and a desire for intimacy due to her appearance. Um, so this one, like, I get, I get that it's talking about, I think, loneliness. I think it's talking about... Um, you know, prejudice against, you know, people with disabilities. Um, I think I get it's talking about sexual violence, especially against those with disabilities. Um, that being said, I think like just the, the whiplash of like how this film progressed over emotionally over the time, I, I get what it's going for. I can't say I enjoyed it that much. Maybe it's not a film that's meant to be enjoyed, frankly. Um, but I think just compared to everything else here, I think this is probably my least favorite of these five films. So I'm going to give like a two out of five. Appreciate the effort for sure, but I think this film just wasn't for me overall. Uh, next up is The Long Goodbye. Uh, Riz Ahmed, who also you know produced The Flea, is also producing this one. So he has two shots at an Oscar this year. Um, or I guess more if you consider The Flea's multiple categories. But anyways, uh, Flea is starring... He, Riz Ahmed is uh, starring and producing uh, this film, which accompanies his concept album, um, uh, of the same name that kind of tackles the rising intolerance against South Asians in Britain um, as a British South Asian himself. Um, you know, the stories of, you know, this family who's gathering together who, you know, faces this, you know, militant right-wing, you know, ethnic cleansing uh, task force, basically. It was, you know, very shocking. And the first half being a portrayal of this intimate family life against this very violent second half is very jarring. Um, it really comes together with this spoken word piece that, that Rizam had hauntingly delivers into the camera basically um and you know as a fan of rhythm at work you know definitely i think a little bit of a bias here for that um so you know i think this one again kind of like again making up a, a statement right i think especially like again like like please hold like the dress making a statement about this specific issue um maybe the the the, the star power of rhythm is, is carrying this a little bit more than it might otherwise um but i really enjoyed this one from a from a Especially that that last you know couple of minutes when he's giving that that spoken word piece. Really, that that's what this piece is—a way to deliver that spoken word piece. Um, I I give this one a four out of five overall. 
Um, finally, we have Alakatu, Take and Run, which is a short film for, from Switzerland, but it's about Kyrgyzstan and the practice, the practice of Alakatu, which is essentially bride kidnapping where um, you know men are encouraged uh, to essentially go to another town, kidnap a woman, and, and essentially force her to be his bride with the help and, and, and support of his, the rest of his, his village makers, of his village, including the women in the village, and kind of like how that's like become a social norm. Um, and it follows this young girl, Sezim, who like, you know, leaves her home to try to study in the capital city of Kyrgyzstan and ends up becoming a victim of bride kidnapping. So again, this is meant to kind of raise awareness of this specific issue. Um, you know, definitely a longer film, though it didn't, didn't feel like, I definitely felt like it, it went by pretty quickly i feel like this is to some degree right like definitely just the misery that that she goes through and the betrayal she feels at the hands of her parents um in, in kind of endorsing this when when they come to see her like very well acted especially on her part i feel like this is just very an very infuriating film i think to watch and knowing that this is happening out of way i guess it's the point of what this film is trying to accomplish um no, maybe, maybe I don't know. Like, it, and then you know, there was there's some ambiguity toward the end. I think of like, was she sneakily let go by one of the women in the in the village or not? When the keys were left in some laundry, she was doing of the car that she used to escape. Like, kind of like what the takeaway is of this. And he's very much PSA film, which I think maybe isn't like the overt PSA ness. Maybe took away a little bit of it for me. But I, I, overall, a, a very well made film. Again, maybe not my favorite, but I think you know I would give this one a three out of five overall. So. Of these, I think uh, The Long Goodbye, I think, is probably my pick to probably win it, um, going off of Rizumet. Though, last year with Oscar Isaac, he, his didn't win either. Um, I think my personal favorite that I would like to win, I think, would be Please Hold, but that's kind of like my my favoritism for sci-fi. And if The Long Goodbye wins, I'd also be okay with that as well. Um, finally, we have the last category, which is the animated sorts category. This one I kind of like saw all over the place. Um, you know, some of these are on Netflix, some of these are on Vimeo, some of these are on YouTube. Um, you know, some of these I think I had sent to me. So, um, in any case, these are, uh, you know, all available in some form or another online. I'm going to go through them in order of from least to most how much I like them. Uh, so first up, we have Affairs of the Art, which is a 2D hand-drawn film by Joanna Quinn about the obsessions that she and her around her when she was younger had in her endeavor, her desire to become an artist. And I mean, I appreciate a good 2D animated film. I don't think this really did anything novel with 2D animation, frankly, frankly speaking. And I don't know, just like the story and especially of like just the, the animal abuse that C and her siblings and friends when she was younger did. And I don't know if it's purely autobiographical or fictional, but it just felt very uncomfortable to watch, I think, going on. And, you know, it just kind of like reinforced, like it, 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 it kind of, I think, points at all of the negative stereotypes i think around artists to some degree what i really don't like i think um of how pretentious they may be and like oh it's 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 this thing i have to pursue right i think that all of that is just like not great and i don't know if that's the point that it's trying to make or not but could not get into this one at all i think i gave like one out of five stars uh, next up is Bestia, which is a Chilean stop-motion animated film directed by Hugo Corvarubias um, about the story of Ingrid Olderock, who was an uh, infamous uh, Chilean secret agent during the military dictatorship of that country. Um, kind of like the the way that this film is set up. So first off, again, I love a good stop-motion animation film. Um, I think this one is definitely well done, um, very conceptual, I think. I think... Also, it's very, very dark, especially when you realize what's going, what the heck's going on. Um, and if you don't have the context, I think you might miss out on this, which may be a detriment to this film in that it, if it wasn't able to really get its point across without knowing more context ahead of time, maybe work against its favor. So, you know, I think well executed, I think in terms, but I think in terms of the concept, maybe could have used a little bit more work on that regard. So overall, I think I give like a two out of five. Uh, next up is probably the weirdest one of these films, which is a uh, windshield wiper. It's a Spanish-American film sort made by Alberto Melgo, who worked on Netflix's Love, Death, and Robots, as well as concept art direction for the Into the Spider-Verse movie, which definitely so is because I think the art direction here was very different, very unique. Um, it, it, was, it was that weird mix of like 2D and 3D, um, which I think was definitely, a, I think, what that artistic perspective really helped this one here. But it tries to answer the question of like, what is love through a series of vignettes, basically. And very disconnected, and I think 
I could very easily see this one going over a lot of people's head if they just don't get it. I could see also a lot of people liking this a lot more than I personally liked it. So I'm somewhere in the middle. I think I appreciate the technical elements. I appreciate what he's trying to say here. I think maybe the narrative didn't quite come together fully for me, but I think I'm going to give this one like a three out of five for the effort. Um, and then, you know, two other stories, which are, I think are the most straightforward, right? One is Box Ballet, which is a Russian hand-drawn film by Anton Dyakov about a ballerina and a boxer who fall in love with each other and kind of like the two different worlds they occupy. Um, this one's pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward love story, more or less, right, of, of people from two different worlds coming together. Um, nothing narratively we haven't seen otherwise. I think what really carries this, I think, is the animation. Again, I think this one's 2D hand-drawn animated, but I think just the use of of the character designs really goes, I think, above and beyond here and really convenient. I mean, granted, it's not the most innovative, you know, big, bulky boxer versus a very slender, thin um, ballerina, but just kind of like the way it goes, it, completely without vocals, right, without any uh, voice acting or anything. I think, you know, I enjoyed this one. Probably somewhere between the three and the four. I'll, I'll, I'll give it the benefit of that and give it the four out of five. Um, but box ballet, I think, is, is, is very charming, um, if not entirely novel. Uh, and then finally, we have Robin Robin, which is the longest of these sorts. Um, it is the British stop-motion Christmas animated musical from Ardman Animations, which Ardman, being the master of stop-motion they are, I think kind of uh, is, is a presumed favorite of mine. Directed by Dan Ojaria and Mikey Please, it's about a robin bird uh, raised by mice and her desire to you know fit in and, and, and be like the mice even when she is her own thing. Um, you know, and it involves you know them trying to sneak into a house to steal a Christmas star, dealing with cats who are chasing after them, and you know, all this song and dance, basically, literally song. Um, I mean, a good stop. It feels like it's something out of a video game, frankly speaking, in the way, like, something like, you know, Little Sack Boy or something, um, where, you know, they, 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 the way that the characters move around and their felt forms, um, and it just felt so charming, I think. And granted, maybe this is the most positive of these five films um, in terms of, of the, the resolution takeaway that, you know, maybe it's not, maybe it's a little simplistic, maybe it's for children, maybe, but it's also just very charming. I think the fact is like a longer film, I think also helps to some degree in terms of like, it had like that much work going into a stop motion film is just magnified with just how long it had to be and all the production that goes into the backgrounds and everything. So, um, you know, I don't think this one, this, this is a, uh, the strongest year for animated sorts out there um, but it definitely I think uh, of these five I think I would end up giving it and hoping that uh, Robin Robin would end up winning so you know those are all the films that I ended up watching um, now you know we have been in past episodes going over the various guild awards that have been uh, awarded out at this point I think all the guild awards have been nominated before the Oscars actually um, I'm going to run through them really quickly um, I don't want to spend too much time on these because we're already at like 15 minutes of recording so far um, but let's kind of go through to help you figure out like what is kind of in in a good position to potentially win um, and granted you know again in a couple of days I'm going to be putting out another episode Episode, interviewing somebody where we go over who we think each category is going to win and who we want to win um you know so you know definitely pay, keep an eye out for that um but real quick so march 5th was the american cinema editors awards the eddies um the dramatic film went to king richard over oscar nominees dune and power the dog and then tick tick boom won a uh, comedy over the oscar nominee of uh don't look up and then kanto also won for animated and summer soul won for documentary uh, the Art Director's Guild Award, which corresponds to production design, was also March 5th. Uh, Nightmare Alley won for period over Macbeth and West Side Story, while Dune went, won for fantasy um, over some non-Oscar nominees. Um, and then uh, Encanto won for animated, and Power the Dog was not nominated at all. Uh, uh, here, while it's, it is nominated for the Oscars. Um, March 9th was the Visual Effects Society, um, which really is visual, the visual effects category. It went to Dune um, over No Time to Die, Sanctuary, and No Way Home with Free Guide not being nominated. Uh, March 9th also had the Society of Composers and Lyricists. So for, you know, and this is basically um, best score. Um, so best score here went to Encanto, actually. It was a bit of a surprise. Um, it won over Don't Look Up, Dune, and Power of the Dog. Um, Parallel Mothers, uh, who was nominated for the Oscars, lost for Best Independent Film. And then No Time to, Dry, Ta no Time to Die won uh, for Best Drama Song over Don't Look Up, Dune, and Power of the Dog. Oh, sorry, over four good days, my bad, um, and some other non-Oscar nominees. Um, 
on March 9th was also the Costume Designers Guild Award. Um, Dune won for Fantasy over some non-Oscar nominees. And then Cruella won for Period Film over Serrano, House of Gucci, and Nightmare Alley. Um, now, March 12th was a big one. Uh, Directors Guild Award went to Power of the Dog of Jane Campion over Licorice Pizza, uh, Belfast, and West Side Story with Drive My Car not being nominated. Uh, March 12th was also the Annie Awards, which bit of an upset here. Um, uh, the Mitchell vs. Machines won multiple awards, including Best Feature over Encanto, Raya, and Luca. Um, it also won Director, Writing, Voice Acting, Character Design, Editorial, Production Design, and Effects, um, while Encanto won uh, for Music character animation and storyboarding uh, Flea won uh, for best indie feature over some other non-nominees and then Bestia won the best sort again over some non-Oscar nominees uh, the 13th was a big night. We had both the BAFTAs and the Critics' Choice Awards. Um, both of them gave uh, Power of the Dog Best Picture, and they also both gave Best Director the Power of the Dog. Um, King Richard won both awards for um, Best Actor. Um, Tammy Faye won the Critics' Choice for Best Actress. Um, I believe the BAFTA had no overlap with the Oscars, actually, uh, for Best Actress. Uh, Best Supporting Actress both went to uh, Ariana DeBose uh, for West Side Story, um, and both... Uh, both films gave a coda for Tori Kotzer for Best Supporting Actor. Um, Licorice Pizza won the BAFTA for Best Original Screenplay, while uh, Belfast uh, won uh, Best Original Screenplay at the Critics' Choices. Interesting, you'd expect to be the other way around. Um, Best Adapted Screenplay at the BAFTA went to Coda, while Best Adapted Screenplay at the Critics' Choice went to Power of the Dog. Um, the Best Animated Film for BAFTA was Encanto, um, while, the, while the Critics' Choice gave it to Missiles versus the Machines. Um, Best Documentary went to Summer of Soul uh, over at the BAFTA. I don't believe the Critics' Choice had one. Um, and then uh, Drive My Car ended up winning a Best International Film for both. Um, technical side of things, uh, Dune won the BAFTA for Best Cinematography. Power of the Dog won it for the Critics' Choice. Um, Best Costume, both went to Cruella. Um, editing, uh, actually, both went to non-Oscar nominees. No Time to Die got it for the Oscar, for BAFTAs. Uh, West Side Story got it for the Critics' Choice. Um, production Design, both went to Dune. Uh, Best Sound um, for, the, uh, for the BAFTAs went to Dune. Visual Effects for uh, both went to Dune, um, and for the Critics' Choice, you know, they had Best Score went to Dune, no, Best Song went to No Time to Die, Tammy Faye got Best Hair and Makeup. So yeah, a lot of awards there. Um, and then uh, also on the 13th was the Motion Picture Sound Editor's Golden Reel Awards. Um, the Dune, Dune won for Effects and Foley, while West Side Story won for Music. Um, and then this past weekend was a bit of an uh, was a bit of a shakeup as well. The first off, we had the Producers Guild Award, um, went to, which is a preferential vote, so that's pretty important given that it reflects the Best Picture voting. Um, and Belfast actually won over. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, my bad. Coda won over Belfast. Don't look up. Dune. King Richard, Liquid Pizza, West Side Story, and presumed frontrunner Power of the Dog. So Coda definitely has a shot in the arm to potentially win the Oscar based off the preferential voting. Um, it's especially between this and the SAG Awards. Uh, Encanto won over the same lineup of animated films, minus Flea for Best Animated Feature, and then Summer of Soul won over the same lineup for Documentary, aside from Attica, uh, for Best Documentary. Uh, March 19th also had the Cinema Audio Society Awards, which gave the award to Dune. Uh, and then the Writers Guild Awards, uh, which was this past weekend, March 20th. Now, not all the films are eligible, so there's some notable uh, exclusions here. But Coda won for Best Adapted Film over uh, adapted Screenplay over Dune, uh, with Lost Daughter, Don't, uh, Drive My Car, and Power the Dog absent from the category. And then Don't Look Up won over King Richard and Licorice Pizza for Best Original Screenplay. Notably, Belfast and Worst Person in the World were not at were not present in this category. March 20th also gave uh, the uh, American Society of Cinematographers Award to Dune. Um, and then the Guild Music Supervisors, uh, March 20th, gave Best Original Song to Dos Orgritas for uh, Encanto over Be Alive. <sighs> okay, so that is uh, my cat's up over the past hour for the last two weeks uh, that I've been uh, moving and trying to watch movies on the side. So yeah, like I said, we have another episode coming up this week where we go over who we think is going to be uh, nominated, who's going to be winning each category and who we want to win each category with a fellow Death Racer. Um, make sure you're filling out your ballots uh, for the Deathies Awards, um, which I'll put in the show notes again, uh, linked in the show notes. You have until 6 p.m. on Tuesday, uh, the 22nd, to submit your 
your ballot. Um, and then make sure you tune in for the Deathies Awards on the 26th. You may see a familiar vase for a couple categories. Um, and then, yeah, and then also, again, I have my contest for predicting who's going to win uh, the best uh, each, each category. So make sure you enter that. Again, link will be in the show notes. Um, in any case, though, uh, best of luck on the death races. That wraps up this episode as we head into this final stretch. Um, that wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race Podcast. Let me know how your death race is going over on Twitter at Oscars D Racecast or email at Oscars Death Race Podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Leave a review or just share it with a movie loving friend. Um, also, linked in the show notes will be my letterbox under the username Ninzaboy with an I, as well as the Discord, the subreddit, uh, and the community website. Uh, music is provided by Kevin MacLeod and accompanied that phone of the I. Editing production by Ninsboy Media. That's it for this week. This has been the Oscars Death Race Pod, Paolo of the Oscars Death Race Podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees or die trying. <laughs>